And welcome to Good Jewish Lover. I'm Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek of the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem, and I am excited to dive into some learning and see what we can learn from the Jewish tradition and elsewhere about how to do the hard work of loving each other better. I'm joined this week by my friend Catherine Bell, who is a professional coach, facilitator, and nonprofit consultant who's worked for a long time to help people grow and develop as leaders and change makers. She works a lot with anti-racist leadership, particularly for white folks, as well as career development. And she has a long history in the Jewish progressive world with organizations like Join for Justice, Keshet, Avodah, and more. She lives in Long Beach, California with her spouse and two children. And I am absolutely thrilled to dive into some conversation about how we love each other better today, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. This is my favorite topic, so I can't wait to dive into some text with you. Great. Well, the story we're going to look at is a story from the Talmud, a story from the Gemara. And just as a quick reminder, the Gemara is this massive compilation of stories, jokes, law, understandings, questions. It is, in many ways, the foundational document of Judaism as we know it. And part of what it is, is a conversation spilling out over hundreds of years as different rabbis try to make sense of human existence. One of the stories, is the story we're going to look at today, is a story about Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. And Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Yoshua, is a, is a remarkable character. And the story begins, this is from Masechet Ketubot, and the story goes as follows. I'm going to tell it here, and for folks who want to see the text in the original, we'll have the link in the show notes. So as the story opens, there are people suffering from this disease called Ratan, and it's not entirely clear what it is, but it seems terrible. And everyone in the, in the vicinity is trying to steer clear of the people suffering from this disease. And different rabbis have different suggestions about how to keep yourself safe. Some say, be careful of the flies that come around them. Some say, don't go into the tents with them. But Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi ignored all of that and would go and sit with the poor, the sick, those who are huddled outside of the walls of the city suffering from this disease, and he would attach himself to them and study Torah. And he said, quoting a verse from Proverbs, in essence, the Torah will keep me safe. I can be with these people. The Torah will keep me safe. Over time, however, Rabbi Joshua's time comes, and the angel of death is preparing to come and collect Rabbi Joshua. And somebody, it's not clear, there are a number of points in the text where it's unclear who's speaking. So the ambiguity is built in, as it is in life. They said to the angel of death, who? Well, maybe we'll explore that. But somebody says to the angel of death, go and perform his bidding. Go and collect Rabbi Joshua and do what he says. And so the Malachamavet, the angel of death, comes to Rabbi Joshua. And Rabbi Joshua says, okay, cool, cool, it's time to go. Can you just show me where in paradise I'm going to be sitting? Can you just show me my seat? And the angel of death says, okay, I've been told to do his bidding. And he says, yeah, over there. You're going to be sitting over there. Rabbi Joshua says, cool, cool. Listen, we're going to start heading out there. And you're holding that big knife and it's sort of freaking me out. Would it be okay with you if I held your knife while we traveled over there to to my eternal home? And the angel of death thinks, all right, I've been told to do his bidding. And he says, sure. And he hands over his knife. They travel for some time. They get to the gates of paradise. They get to the walls. 
And Rabbi Joshua says to the angel of death, you know, I can't quite see over the wall. Can you just give me a little boost up so I can peek over the wall? And the Malchamavit says, all right, I'm supposed to do your bidding. Okay. So he he lifts him up. I'm imagining him giving like a little boost up to a kid over a fence, right? So Rabbi Joshua can peer over the border between heaven and earth. And Rabbi Joshua jumps over the fence with the knife. And he's then on the other side. And the Malachimava, the angel of death, is on one side of this fence. And he can't enter into the Garden of Eden. And Rabbi Joshua is on the other side, right? And I'm sort of imagining him taunting, being like, what do you do with me now, Right. The angel of death reaches over the fence, grabs Rabbi Joshua's cloak, and is holding him there. Rabbi Joshua takes a vow, and in rabbinic thought, a vow is very heavy duty, as we'll see in a moment, and says, I vow, I promise, I am not going back with you over this fence. And then a voice rings out from the Holy One of Blessing and says, if ever in Rabbi Joshua's life he has requested that one of his vows be annulled, he's got to go back with the angel of death. However, if he has never tried to annul one of his vows, he can stay. Rabbi Joshua, basically, I'm imagining him saying, checkmate, I have never, never tried to get out of a vow. And he drops down into heaven. And now the angel of death is angry. He's on the other side of the fence. Rabbi Joshua is inside the fence and he's got his knife. And the angel of death is like, oh, come on, just at least give me my knife back. And Rabbi Joshua didn't give him the knife back, right? Saying, now not only can you not get me, you can't get anyone. I've got your knife. A voice cries out again from heaven, from the Holy One, and says, give him back the knife. He needs it for the other creatures. Rabbi Joshua reluctantly, I'm almost imagining sullenly, hands over the knife. And then Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Navi, comes and announces Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, announces his presence into the Garden of Eden. He says, make way for the son of Levi, make way for the son of Levi, and seen. Of course, it being the Talmud, there's another story, and then another story, and then another story. But to keep this somewhat bite-sized, let's, let's just stop there for a moment. So, Catherine, let me just ask you, what, what jumps out at you at the story? What, what grabs your attention? First of all, I wish you were around when I was a kid to teach me Gemara, because I think I would have studied more Gemara if I could hear it, because that was a very exciting story. I mean, the first thing that struck me about it, Brent, was hearing Rabbi Yehoshua give voice to what he needed from the angel of death. Like in the first part when he was like, all right, can you do this? Can you do that? Whether or not he knew that he had divine authorization for the angel of death to do his bidding... And I don't know whether he knew or not that he was going to get his his wishes answered. It just struck me the way he was like, put me down over here, do this. But like that he sort of was like giving directions. And I think that jumps out at me because that's such a huge theme that I notice is how hard it is to sort of say to someone else, this is what would be helpful. Uh-huh. To really just sort of name your needs in any sort of relationship. Yeah. To name your needs and to have an expectation that the person will either help you meet those needs or disagree with you and counteract you. But either way, that's the risk you're taking by naming them. Yeah, right. Because there's a vulnerability in saying, I need or I want or I'd like X. Because if you say it cleanly, you might get a no, right? That's the attraction, the unhealthy attraction of sort of passive communication. Oh, it's hot in here. You're not making yourself vulnerable. You just say, oh, I'm hot, hoping that somebody will pick up on your needs and meet your needs. But if you say, I'm hot, 
would you bring me a glass of water? Then you're vulnerable because somebody might say, no, I'm not getting you a glass of water. Get up and do it yourself. The angel of death consented to all of the things that led up to the predicament that he found himself in. He like agreed to do all the things that led to Rabbi Yehoshua on the other side of the wall holding the knife. Yeah. So what do you take from that in terms of how we respond to requests? Because by the end of it, I mean, I'm going to speculate here, but I don't think this worked out the way the angel of death wanted. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I am picturing resentment on the part of the angel of death when he wasn't given much choice uh-huh. in the matter. I feel like a lot of it depends on how much autonomy we feel like we have to either agree or not agree with the request that someone is making of us. So I think like early on, when the angel of death is told by this voice, you need to do what this guy asks of you, that's a pretty key moment. Yeah. What I'm thinking about here is a conversation I've had with my kids more than once, and I'm sure not for the last time. If I say, hey, you know, son, would you clear the table? That sounds like a question to which you can say no, (laughs) right? And trying to simultaneously, on my part, be direct and cleaner in my communications, but also helping my kids understand the nuance of questions and commands that is, is sometimes a little subtle. Right? I don't want to be barking commands at my kids. But other times, that sort of ambiguity is really problematic. Is this a request to which I can accept yeah. a no or not? How do you tell the difference? Yeah. I mean, part of it can be how we can be more precise in our language by articulating the stakes, the importance, the reason for the request, the timeline for <laughs> request, the request. I mean, I think this comes up certainly in the working world, too, is when a request comes from out of the blue with no context, it can feel arbitrary and oppressive. And when it when there's like really good context given, like this is this is a situation, here's how you doing this thing can help contribute to something that I think ultimately you want to contribute to. And it's actually in your interest to be a, to be a part of the solution. And here's the impact, the positive impact it will make. It's really different than something that's a request that feels like, someone else coming along and trying to control your actions. Uh Uh-huh. So the question that you posed was, how can we tell when something is a request versus a command? A tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, relationships are tricky. And I'm thinking, I'm curious what you make of it, about the role of, I'm struggling with the word hierarchy here. I'm not, (laughs) I feel allergic to that word, but that does feel like part of it. Does the context of this actually allow for disagreement or welcome disagreement or not. And let's just say that for me to get this straight in my head, the context is you have a heavenly voice Uh and then you have the angel of death and then you have Rav Yehoshua and he's getting maybe bumped up and not. Usually the angel of death is the one who gets to call the shots. Right. But in this case, because the heavenly voice sort of is underwriting Rav Yehoshua, he's getting... He's getting a little bit of an edge here. Mm -hmm. Hierarchy matters. I mean, power matters. And I think the angel of death knew that if he didn't obey the heavenly voice, there would be some kind of consequence. So I think another piece of this is when you're being directed or told to do something or refrain from doing something by by someone or something that has power, there's got to be some kind of sense of the consequences of resisting that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the way you framed it before, because sometimes that power can be punitive. 
do this or else, you know, set the table or you don't get any ice cream. Or, you know, in the case of our story, if it is uh, the Holy One who's speaking in some ways, it's just sort of like, all right, that's the winning card in any sort of question of power. But in human relationships where things are not quite as differentiated as human and divine, I'm very curious about the way you said giving the context and the reason for it of a shared goal, right? So thinking... I want to think first about a parent-child relationship, but then a relationship between partners or friends, right? I could say, son, set the table. I'm your father. Do it. Right. Rah, rah, rah. Or I could say, hey, you know, hey, we're all really excited to uh, play a game after dinner. Let's all work as a team to clean up from dinner and you're going to clear the table and you're going to scrub the dishes and you're going to take out the trash. And if we work together as a team and get it done fast, then we can all play the game together afterward. The same outcome, I'm still saying, let's clean up from dinner. But that context, it sounds like evens the power a little bit. Instead of the high authority figure barking out commands, it's somebody slightly uphill saying, all right, we're all on the same team. We're all on this together. I'm going to be giving instructions. I'm, I'm, I'm steering, but I'm not, it's not a massive differential. It's a little differential. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a great example. And I think that part of it is about moving from coercion to consent. So like, if you can get someone to say, hey, it's actually kind of in my self-interest. Last night, my daughter's birthday is coming up and we got her some presents from Amazon, commentary to be discussed <laughs> later about the challenges of huge multinational corporations and the way that they impact small businesses, but be it as it may. So noted. And she had been excited about checking Amazon and looking at Amazon all week in preparation for this. And we had asked her last night, please, now that you're selected your birthday presents, don't look at Amazon again for like the rest of the month because we don't want you to, from our shared account, we don't want to, we don't want you to see what she purchased. But we just told her, don't look at Amazon. And she like freaked out and didn't react well. And she, like, she just heard the command. And we were uh-huh. basically saying, you're in charge, you don't look at Amazon. And then later on, after I was able to talk to her, I was like, we don't want you to look at Amazon because we don't want to ruin the surprise for your birthday. And I don't think that you want to ruin the surprise. We're going to look at our order history and see all the stuff and we don't want you to have to do that. And she sort of was like, oh, well, why don't you tell me that? The additional context is about like helping her see what's her self-interest in the situation and feeling like she's giving consent and having a, a voice in participating in the decision, not having it sort of like foisted upon her. And sometimes it's a little disingenuous because sometimes we might give a request that the person doesn't actually have self-interest in. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that question of consent. But part of what I think makes this story here about Rabbi Joshua complicated is that I get the sense, though that this is my interpretation, that Rabbi Joshua was playing a game, right? He was trying to outwit the angel of death in some way. So these things that were presented as requests, would you show me my place? Would you hand me your knife? There was an aspect of manipulation there, right? And that's, in some ways, I feel like what you're saying is that in an honorable relationship, you need to communicate, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm articulating the goal and I'm inviting you to come with me to the goal. The goal is a surprising birthday or yeah. whatever it might be. And maybe Rabbi Hoshua knew that the hierarchy, the power differential between him and the angel of death, who I imagine for most creatures that need to meet his knife at some point, that he gets the last word in almost every situation, that he knew that the only way he could do this was through this sort of playing this trickster role. Because if he was to approach him and say, hey, here's the context. I'm a great <laughs> teacher. I could do a lot more good in the world if you just let me live. 
<laughs> you know, the angel of death is not going to find it in his self-interest to say, yeah, I'm going to consent to my, to your desire to, to stay alive or to, to go to, to go to heaven. Yeah. Right. There are those moments I was, without getting into the whole story, I was recently on a boat that ran into some trouble and it was a ferry boat and it was enough trouble that they initiated emergency procedures and had everyone put on life vests. They activated the lifeboats, which thank God we did not have to get into. But there are a thousand people, kids, children, it's a ferry boat. And the crew got up and started giving commands, you know, in a, in a fairly hierarchical manner. This is the captain speaking, put on the life jackets. And somebody else, one of the passengers, actually started saying something. And the crew said, you know, the, the person who was leading this part of things said, sir, I appreciate what you're saying. Please let us do our jobs. This is what you need to do. And it was in the in terms of what you're saying, it was a moment of there was compassion there. There was recognition, but also a very clear statement of authority. We're the crew. You're the passengers. We've got the emergency procedures. Please do what we're saying. And there wasn't room for discussion, right? This is not a moment to let's have a consensus among a thousand people on a sinking boat. And that sense of urgency is there. And for a lot of things, I'm thinking about all sorts of human relationships where we get impatient or I get impatient and just want to get to the, just do this thing. Part of it sounds like what you're counseling for these conversations to go well is actually go a little bit slow because we're usually not arguing with the ultimate boundary of death. We're usually not in a boat where we're in an emergency situation. Usually we actually can slow down and say, hey, I want you not to look at Amazon because I want your birthday to be special. Or, hey, I want you to be part of the cleaning up team because I want to do something fun afterward with all of us together. And just slowing down a little bit and inviting the people into the process, recognizing that the cases where that's not possible, an emergency situation on a boat, the angel of death, those are actually the exception, not the rule. Is that, am I getting that yeah. right? Yeah, I love that you brought that out. <laughs> the idea of slowing down, I think that in general, slowing down for all of us is probably good counsel in most in most of our relationship work. Slow, slowing down enough to sort of regulate our nervous system a little bit, to take stock of what's going on inside of me around my request. Like, is that is this request actually that important? If it's meeting some resistance, like, do I actually really need to double down on this request or not? And if so, then what's the best path forward? And if in the slowing down, it could it could include calling the person who's receiving the request into relationship with me a little bit more, as opposed to me. I mean, as a parent, I mean, God, I definitely want to just like just listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been anything that you're going through, I've been through it before, and I learned it the hard way. And I'm, my job is to keep you safe and like just listen to me. Um, <laughs> but if there's ways that it, and it is less efficient, it requires slowing down to call let's say my kid into relationship with me to say, look, I want you to make your own choices. I want you to be happy. I want you to feel like you're not being controlled by me. I want you to feel like you can be the author of your own story and do what you want to with your time. And what I want is for you to, here's the outcome I'm hoping for you. I want you to have a birthday that has an element of surprise in it. And like one thing this is making me think about a little bit in the idea of slowing down is just the ways that um, some of that nuance is not easy to capture unless you're ideally face-to-face or at least like we are now, you know, on Zoom or verbalizing with each other. It's very hard to do over email and text. And I think that a lot of the nuance of calling people into relationship by setting a boundary and calling people into relationship by making a request gets lost when we are not able to use our voices to do it. 
Yeah, the actual voice, the actual tone is hugely important and conveys as much, if not more, than the actual words. In that situation on the boat, I was so aware of how the crew was communicating compassion and authority, appropriate authority. They weren't freaking out. They weren't yelling at people. They were acknowledging, yeah, this is a scary situation. And here's how we're going to get through it. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm curious. So you mentioned boundaries. And by my count in this story, there are at least three different boundaries that are tested. One is the boundary around the folks who have ratan, right? And the societal boundary is don't go near them, stay away, protect yourself. And Rabbi Yeshua transgresses, so to speak, that boundary and goes and sits and learns together with those who are sick. A second boundary is the literal physical boundary separating the imagined Garden of Eden from Earth that Rabbi Joshua literally jumps over in a violation of the norms of the universe, apparently. And then the third boundary is death, actually, right? When Rabbi Joshua takes the knife. And each of these boundaries, Rabbi Joshua violates the boundary of sitting with those who are sick. And that seems, or at least to my mind, as a good, as a meritorious thing, being compassionate and present to those who are suffering. One boundary crossing, jumping over, seems like there's an exception made. All right, because Rabbi Joshua, for some special circumstances, he can jump over this boundary, period. But he can't obviate the boundary, right? The angel of death has to get his knife back. We are making this exception. We, the Holy One perhaps, is making the exception that allows Rabbi Joshua to jump over the boundary, but it's an exception. As far as death being the ultimate boundary, that, the Holy One says, that has to stay, right? The angel of death has to keep his knife. What it is to be alive is to be mortal. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, in the work you do with relationships with people and people navigating these boundaries in all sorts of contexts, how can we think wisely about what boundaries have some flex, right? This is the rule, but we're going to make an exception here, right? We buy local, except occasionally we buy from Amazon. And what our boundaries are absolute, right? This is an absolute boundary, no flex whatsoever. How do we think wisely about that in our in our different relationships, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm thinking about the ways that in the case of the boundary around don't study Torah with the sick, there's a piece here about conventional wisdom and like everything we've been brought to know about what is healthy or what is good or what is desirable. And sometimes we have to test those boundaries on our own. We have to go against conventional wisdom and have a little bit of experiential skin in the game to learn for ourselves whether or not the boundary is actually really important. And you know, in that case, playing around with or testing a boundary can be really healthy mm. to say, like, there's some wiggle room here and I want to I want to figure out for myself based on my real lived experience, what is kosher? What's not kosher? What's safe? What's not safe? I don't want to sort of take it as received from my parents, from mainstream society or from whatever sources we have. I want to sort of figure out for myself and my life what the right boundary is. And the only way I can do that is by experimenting right up against that boundary or crossing it in, in ways until I can figure out what holds. So if I'm hearing you right, one question is, what are the consequences of getting this wrong? If the boundary is, I'll get social scorn for, I don't know, dyeing my hair pink. Okay, I don't know. I'll try that. And if I get some social scorn, no big deal. As opposed to if the consequence of not putting on the life vest when the when the captain says so, the consequences are potentially very, very severe 
I don't want to test that boundary because if I'm wrong, it's catastrophic. Somebody gives me a funny look because I've got pink hair. Kakaze, no big deal. All right. Is that part of what you're saying, understanding what the consequences are? Yeah, I think so. But like I'm reading less in a binary saying like either it's 100% this or 0% that, but sort of like being in the gray, being in a mushy middle around something like, let's say being, let's say thinking about a boundary might be about alcohol consumption. Mm. And to say, like, in order to to show up in a healthy way in my relationships, I either need to be able to drink to be able to, like, be cool and relax with these people or I need to, you know, drink nothing. I think that it's valuable to be able to have some flexibility when it mm-hmm. comes to discipline and to be able to experiment. And I mean, like, kosher is kind of a binary standard in some ways. It's sort of like, I sort of keep kosher because I'm sort of, I'm a kosher style pescatarian. But I think you basically either keep kosher or you don't you know, you're sort of like adhering to the law or you don't. And there's something that's really powerful about that. And that helps create some clarity of like, whether you're in this or you're not in this. And I think that in general, and a lot of the coaching work I do, I try to work with people and for myself, I try to figure out what are ways outside of that, of a binary way of thinking that can help me see the gray, the mushy middle that might open up more possibilities for my behavior and my relationships. Yeah, that's such a good example about kosher because, right, sometimes it can seem like it's a binary. Either you're kosher or you're not. And lots of folks, as you just described, you know, are are somewhere in the middle. I think about my mother-in-law saying she doesn't eat glot right? So, you know, no pork, no shellfish, but, you know, whether or not the meat was shechted properly, she's not so worried about that. But it also sounds like part of what you're talking about when it comes to relationships is forgiveness, right? In an extreme example, putting on a life vest, it's you in the water, right? There's no question of forget. You're not actually in a relationship with the water. But with a person, it sounds like part of it is what can be forgiven. So thinking about two different boundaries, uh, one might ha- you might have a boundary that says my bodily integrity is paramount. And if my partner raises their fist against me, that's an absolute red line boundary. Or put differently, that's not something I can forgive. If my partner raises their hand against me, I need to get out. This relationship needs to be over. That is a boundary, capital B. You might also have a boundary that says you don't raise your voice against your partner, right? You don't shout at your partner. But it might be that in the course of you know, a long relationship and even a healthy relationship, something happens, somebody gets upset and somebody raises their voice. And people, I'm sure, will have different thoughts and feelings about this, but it's easy to imagine somebody saying, I can imagine saying this myself, okay, my boundary is I don't want to be shouted out, but sometimes that's going to happen and I can forgive that. I can tolerate a certain deviation from that boundary. If it's every day, every week, that's one thing. Every couple of years, I get into an argument with somebody I love and voices are raised, That might be a tolerable violation of a boundary. But the reason it's tolerable, if I'm I'm understanding you right, is that it's forgivable. I could forgive somebody shouting at me more easily than I could forgive somebody raising a fist against me. You were talking about consequences before, like whether or not a boundary is firm versus transgressible relates to the consequences. And here, right, the forgiveness is sort of like being clear with ourselves about what are the relational consequences of the action that we're about to take. And on a smaller scale, not on the scale of what would cause someone to walk away from a lifelong commitment, but just on the smaller scale of, you know, when I know that I'm right about something in a conversation. Oh, I know that. For an argument with my spouse. And I have to stop myself and think, 
what are the relational consequences? <laughs> what are the relational consequences of me asserting my rightness or like trying to grab my phone and Google to prove my rightness <laughs> with the relational consequences of that worth, you know, the fulfillment of this other value that I have, which is like, I want to be right. And I like, I need to be, I need to establish that. A friend of mine used to have this phrase, can our relationship tolerate my rate of failure, right? Can our relationship be strong enough to endure whatever I'm about to screw up? And the relationship might be able to endure an occasional raised voice, but appropriately and healthily not a raised fist. There was one other thing I was going to say about the story with Rebbe Hoshua is him jumping over the wall made me think about sort of the audacious aspirational boundaries that we sometimes put up against our own brilliance. And so it made me think of like, I don't know at what point he conceived of the possibility that he could even jump over the wall. Uh Uh-huh. But I could imagine his colleagues sitting back on earth, not even conceiving of that as a possibility. And I sort of put this in the category of like an aspirational boundary or a boundary that we set for ourselves of not just like, what can I risk? What can I learn about reality and what is true by transgressing boundaries to figure out for myself what is true based on my lived experience? But what could be possible if I allow myself to transgress a boundary of what I of what I had previously thought was something that would even be part of the future. Ah, so let me make sure I've got this right. We've been talking until here about boundaries in between people, right? How the boundary yes. between your behavior and mine. But now it sounds like you're talking about somebody's internal boundaries, their sense of who they are, and maybe expanding those a little bit. Yeah, I did. And I think that that ultimately very much impacts our relationships with other people because I think it's possible for us to explode some of the boundaries. Or Maybe the word boundary I'm using here is more about like limitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that boundary and limitation are two sides of a many-sided die, but it's basically about acknowledging a perceived limitation and then daring to move past it. Uh-huh. Right. I don't think of myself as someone who can... I'm not an athlete, right? That limitation is I'm not an athlete, but now I'm going to push myself to run a 5K and and move past that boundary. Yeah, and I think, right, that can show up as in any kind of goals we set for ourselves. And I do think it can show up in our relationships because I think that if we have a strong boundary of like, I'm a this person, I'm not a that person. If we have boundaries around, aka limitations around how we perceive of ourselves, I think that will lead to limitations in how we show up in our relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the hardest things in a relationship is fully recognizing the humanity of the other person, saying, oh, here I am talking to Catherine, and Catherine is a full and complete person with her own needs, desires, wants, fears, hopes, dreams, and I need to recognize that, mm-hmm. all of which is much easier said than done. But that feels like a different sort of boundary and a foundational boundary. This is a person. This is a person even created in the image of God. Yeah. Keeping that boundary all the time is exhausting. And so we, we don't, but it's vital. Yeah. And that's what Buber wrote about in the I, the I, it versus the I, you, the I, thou relationship of like what it means to do that in the deepest ways. I think that what you're describing is at the heart of so many of the social justice Issues that are so dear to me and I know to you around what it means to be relating to people and the non-human world, uh, well, people in their full humanity and the non-human world with sanity and respect. Yeah, and it does go back to what we were talking, to the, the idea of autonomy and consent. I feel like the idea of consent 
got popular in my world around conversations about college campus, discussions about sexual harassment and overcoming date rape culture and occupies a specific piece around, you know, how do you teach young people to have good sexual ethics and boundaries. But I actually think that the idea of consent comes into every aspect of relationship, including it gets into things like politeness. Mm. Like when people do things just to be polite, or just because they're afraid of conflict, but that's that's not the same thing as actual consent, I think. I'm just, when you're thinking about peers and I'm friends with a lot of white women and I think some of our socialization and training has been around not making waves, trying to please other people and agreeing to something because you don't want to hurt someone else mm. or you don't want to feel guilty or you don't want to make some, let someone down is I don't think is the same thing as enthusiastic consent. It's not the same as really being given an option that you feel like you have to understand the, the context, understand the consequences and say yes or no based on what's, what's good for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's making me think a little bit about I think we need to be able to negotiate. And I don't mean negotiate in a cynical business sense where I try to get as much from you as possible and give as little to you as possible, but rather than the sense of negotiate in terms of let's communicate openly about what the stakes are for each of us, what the resources are, what the realm of possibility is, and what we can each, what we most dream of, what we can live with, what the consequences might be. Yeah. You know, in the work I do with couples, I work a lot with couples on their, their primary relationships. And that language there of like, all right, let's, can we dream together about what the possibilities might be? I'm, I'm paraphrasing you there. I feel like so often folks think they're playing checkers or chess with their primary partners, right? If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose, right? That, that's the way chess works. Chess is a, is a competitive game and I love chess. But it's a horrible way to have a relationship, right? And trying to think about a relationship more as doing the crossword together, right? Instead of we're competing against each other, we're actually working together to solve this crossword puzzle. We're on the same team against, so to speak, the crossword puzzle. We're dreaming together of a complete Sunday crossword puzzle or whatever it might be that we're dreaming of, Mm -hmm. but getting on the same side of the problem as whoever you're working with, right? Yeah. But I at least find that sort of like captain authority, very seductive, even as it's very damaging. It calls to me for some reason. Do you ever have that? Oh, for sure. I have a colleague who is a single dad and he jokes uh, and I'm and I'm raising kids with with my spouse and my friend's a single dad jokes. He's like, I could never be partnered and raise kids. It's way too much work, you know, oh. which goes against the conventional wisdom of it's, you know, how hard it is, uh, obviously, to to be a single parent as it is to be a parent in well, any, any, it's hard to be a parent, period. But he was talking, right? He was talking about the, the decision-making clarity and freedom that he has yeah. rather than the need to negotiate everything. It's also, you know, like hierarchical organizations can be more efficient, I don't think efficiency is the key value of every single organization, but the more consensus-based or democratic an organization gets, it's, it, can be, it can be challenging to be efficient. Mm-hmm. It takes time, energy, resources to bring in multiple voices into decision-making to negotiate an outcome that's consensed upon. And sometimes that efficiency is really important, like in an army. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a soldier. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a soldier. But in that experience I had on the boat uh, just a couple of days ago, I felt very relieved to be, well, relieved of any responsibility for decision making because I'm not qualified to make those decisions. Thank God there was a crew and a captain who who were. But I'm really struck by 
in some ways, how this story, the story of Rabbi Joshua and the Malachim of the angel of death, actually highlights the ways in which this isn't what most of our relationships are like, right? In this story, we have like very clear, if complicated, hierarchy. There's God, there's the angel of death, there's Rabbi Joshua. There are complexities there, but there's also a very clear hierarchy. And the boundary we're talking about is arguably the fundamental boundary of human existence, right? The boundary of death. And in some ways, what this is highlighting for me is how unlike this, most of our relationships are. Most of our relationships, the hierarchy, even in a professional context, is not the the hierarchy between the Holy One and human beings, even as some executive directors might think otherwise. In fact, we're all human beings, right? So any human relationship is going to be flatter than what we're talking about here. And any boundaries we're talking about are more flexible, more porous than the boundary between life and death, almost by definition. And so I'm struck at, and I confess a little embarrassed in reading this to realize how seductive I find that authoritative voice of God or the captain saying, just do this thing. But recognizing that's not where I live. I don't live on a boat in in a nautical emergency. I don't live in negotiations with the angel of death. I live with other people, my kids, my partner, my colleagues, my friends, who are human beings like me with their strengths and weaknesses. And I owe it to them and they owe it to me to br- bring some degree of consensus. It doesn't, everything doesn't have to be a, you know, 1970s co-op, but we can have a little bit more consensus than a boat captain in emergency. And we can go a little bit more slowly than I'm at least inclined to go because again, we're not on a sinking boat. In almost all circumstances, we actually do have more space than we give ourselves to just be like, hey, let me explain this to you. Let me invite you in, right? This this story is almost feeling like the exception that proves the rule. In this story, it's one way, but our lives aren't this way most of the time. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the going slower recommendation that comes (laughs) out of it. And, you know, because it's different, because it's the exception that proves the rule, we can say... The trickery, the manipulation, the not being explicit and forthcoming of his true desires that Rabbi Yehoshua was engaging in is like the opposite direction. It's like we should take the cues from doing the opposite of that. He had to resort to that because we're not in his situation. We are in the situation that you described that is less hierarchical, more relational, and more nuanced. The best strategy for us is to be real. Yeah. And vulnerable and make requests and recognize those requests might get denied. And that's okay. So we're running short on time here. Um, I want to respect the boundaries of our time, but I want to, if I may, end with a question that is actually part of my family's Shabbos practice. So what we do is we go around the table and we call them our pegs. And we invite folks at the table to share a moment from the recent past where they felt proud, a moment when they felt embarrassed, and a moment when they felt grateful. So as you feel comfortable, I want to invite you to share a moment when you felt proud, a moment when you felt embarrassed, and a moment when you felt grateful. All right. So one thing that I feel proud of is that I am going to be undergoing surgery for for very treatable breast cancer soon. And as I was preparing for this, I realized that I wanted to create a way to mark the significance of this moment. And so 
I decided I wanted to create a ritual opportunity to immerse in some water with friends to mark the transformation that I was going to be undergoing physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I'm proud of it because I figured out that I wanted that, I needed that, and then I asked for it. I didn't sort of like wait for it to pass and then experience regret at not having taken the time to figure out and ask myself what I needed. And then once I figured out I wanted it, I didn't sort of sit and wait hoping a friend would call me to offer it. I said, this is what I want. I think I said it in a way that was respectful and approachable. Um, But I feel proud that I, yeah, that I figured out what I wanted and asked for it. Embarrassed. um, Yeah, I think... As a white person, I do work addressing racism in Jewish spaces and society outside of Jewish spaces. And I often do that work in partnership with educators and facilitators of color. And I felt embarrassed recently in a collaborative piece of work I was doing um, with an educator of color in my efforts to like support this person's leadership as a Black educator. I like swooped in and was overly protective and like basically didn't slow down enough to honor that this person actually had it covered, didn't need me to have been to protect him. They were, I think white saviorism was an aspect of the training that we were working on together. So when I realized that I was actually like participating in some way, in part of the dynamic that we were trying to be teaching and engaging people about, I was definitely embarrassed. And luckily we had the relational good footing mm-hmm. to, to move through that together, but just like, you know, continually on my, on my own learning journey. And I'm grateful for the people in my life who are showing me such grace and care as I navigate health challenges with full expectation that I'm going to come out swinging on the other end of it. But people who are helping me figure out how to slow down so that I can approach that with healing. If there's anything I take with me from this conversation, I want to say that it's this idea of slowing down. Well, amen to that. And thank you, Catherine, for for sharing all of that. I hope that all of your health challenges are easily and successfully resolved and that you come through them full and healthy and vibrant, both in body and in spirit, with the love and support of your medical team, of your spouse, and your friends and children and all the people who love you. Amen. Amen. May it be so. Ken Hiratson. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or texts you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers. Mm